Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well as you're at home, sitting on your couch in your living room as a family. I invite you to open up uh, your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Matthew 5, verse 9. I know we're only going to be looking at one verse this morning, but I think you'll find it very helpful to have your Bible with you because we're going to start there and then we're going to jump around uh, to and fro trying to really unpack what Matthew 5, verse 9 means for us. So as a church, you have been in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And slowly, you're working through the Beatitudes one at a time. And what you're finding is that these Beatitudes describe what life is like inside the kingdom. This is how God's kingdom, his people live. And so consequently, we find out that the Beatitudes teach us that our lives change. When we enter into God's kingdom, our life begins to look differently. But the Beatitudes also describe for us a life of human flourishing. So, so the world says that your life should look like it's all put together. The world says you should be strong. You should be proud. You should uh, be among the great, that you should be content morally, that you should crush those who would ascend in society and threaten your kingdom, and that you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. You need a backup plan in case something goes wrong, but the Beatitudes teach us that the blessed ones, the happy ones, the flourishing ones are those who are poor in spirit. They are those who mourn the state of the world. They, they are the meek. They are the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are the merciful and they are the pure in spirit. Which brings us to our beatitude this morning. Matthew 5 verse 9 says this, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Now, I think this beatitude, probably amongst all the beatitudes, causes the most confusion. It allows for the most disparity in understanding. So, so do this, for, for example. What comes to mind when you hear the word peace or, or peacemaker? Some of you may think, okay, of lack of war of the United Nations, maybe a diplomat, maybe peace treaties, or maybe you think of something a little closer to home. You think of a counselor, antidepressant medicine. You think, okay, peace looks like not this morning, not what I'm going through right now. Peace looks like a day at the spa, I could really go for a day at the spa. I'm manly enough to admit that. Peace looks like what? Well, get this. A, a number of years ago, the United States developed what they called a massive intercontinental ballistic missile. This missile was able to deliver 12 300 kiloton bombs onto their enemy at a flick of the switch. 
What, what is a kiloton? You, you don't need to know. It's a lot, okay? And guess what they called this missile? They called it the peacemaker. The peacemaker. And so, so if being a peacemaker looks like anything from a day at the spa to an intercontinental ballistic missile, then I think we're going to need some help to define and understand what Jesus has in mind when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So, so here, here's my outline, okay? For all you type A people, let me put you at peace. Let me tell you how we're going to work through this. We're actually going to work backwards. So we're going to start at the end and then work our way to the front. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at becoming a peacemaker, being a peacemaker. And then lastly, we're going to quickly look at the benefit of being a peacemaker. So, so first, becoming a peacemaker. When it says in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, what the Bible is not describing here is how you become a son of God. N notice that my point is becoming a peacemaker, not becoming a son of God. If you want to know how to become a son of God, you need to turn, for example, to the book of John. John 1 verse 12 says this, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So how do you become a child of God? Well, you believe, you, you believe in his name or, or Galatians 3 verse 26 puts it this way. It says, for in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. It is faith. It is belief in who Jesus is that causes you to be adopted by him and become his child. So what Matthew 5 verse 9 is doing for us then is not describing how you become a son of God. It's telling you how uh, your life will look if you are a son of God. It's as though Jesus is looking at you on the day of judgment and going, you are my son, you are my child, you are my daughter. And the way I know this is because of the evidence in your life. And that evidence is that you are a peacemaker. We use language like this today. So for example, when my daughter wakes up at five in the morning and she is singing at the top of her lungs and she's pulling back the curtains and she's jumping up and down and going, wake up, sister, wake up, brother. You know what? No one has ever said in that moment. No one has ever said, I have no idea whose child that is. No, <laughs> they know that's her daddy's daughter. That she's she's mine because because I, I'm just loud. I'm energetic. I need to move. I need to get out. I I can't kind of stand to my myself. And so they know she belongs to her dad. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And so when God is saying, "Look, you are a son of God," He's saying the way I know that is because you are like me. You're a peacemaker. 
Now, now let's talk about this language a little bit. In your Bibles, I'm not sure that what version you're looking at, but it might be uh, translated a little differently. Your Bible might say, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God, or, or children of God. Now, what the Bible is not trying to do here when it, it calls you a son of God is exclude women from the community of faith. No, in fact, women play a very prominent role. They, they are vital and essential to the work that Jesus done, does to establish his kingdom, to, to expand that kingdom. W women are absolutely essential. The, the reason, though, that the Bible uses language such as son of God is because of inheritance. You, you see, it was the son that would receive the family's inheritance. When the father dies, the son, starting with the oldest, would get the largest amount of inheritance, and then the next son would get a little bit less, and so on and so on. And so what the Bible is doing, what Jesus is doing when he calls you in a way a son of God is telling you that you receive an inheritance. Whether you are a female or a male, you receive that which belongs to God. His storehouses in heaven are being poured out for you. He is granting you all that belongs to him. But inheritance is more than just transfer of wealth. Inheritance language is also language of cultivating a way of life. See, we, we are less familiar with this today, but let's say there is a farming family. If you were to receive an inheritance as a son who worked on the farm, you don't just get the farm when your dad passes away. You also get an inheritance of living life on the farm. Your inheritance is, in a, in a way, working on the farm. So take Peter, for example. Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. He is a fisherman. He doesn't just get his father's net. He doesn't just get the boat. He doesn't just get his father's supplies when his father retires or calls it quits or, or kicks the can. He, in a way, gets the, the skills, the, the expertise, the, the training that also comes with being a fisherman. He, he works alongside of his dad and so learns what it's like to be a fisherman. So when Jesus says, you are a son of God, if you are a peacemaker, he is saying that when you become his child, you also learn how to be a peacemaker because you've experienced it personally in your own life. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at this verse a couple times. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. It says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
even though once we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So, so I have a new perspective on life now. I've been changed. I see things differently. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then there are two important ands in this passage. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. If you are a follower of Christ, you have been called to be a peacemaker. And in fact, you have been given a front row seat as to know how to be a peacemaker. More than that, the Bible tells us you have been empowered to be a peacemaker because you've received the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. The fruit that the Spirit produces in your life is love, joy, peace, and so on and so on. You have been trained as to how to be a peacemaker and you've been empowered to be a peacemaker. Being a peacemaker, it's in your heritage. It's in your DNA and it's in your calling. Now, here's the objection. Well, you know, I actually think I can be a peacemaker without God. I actually think that I can experience peace by myself. And, and so let, let, let's, look at it. let's look at it this way. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going I'm to read the whole chapter. Because I think it's important you understand uh, the many facets of your life that you need peace. This, this will describe where you need peace. It also will describe how peace has been achieved. And it's also going to tell you that you need peace in order to be a peacemaker. So, so let's look at this, starting at, starting at the beginning, ver, verse 1. So, so remember, Genesis 1 and 2, God makes the world. He declares everything to be good. Everything is fine. God places Adam and Eve in the garden. They're, they're in essentially what is paradise. He says, go have at it. Just enjoy yourself. Be my image. Experience great joy. Just, just one thing. There's just this one tree. I'm giving you everything else, but there's this one tree. Just don't eat from this one tree. So you probably know how this is going to go then. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent, that's also the devil, we're told later in the Bible, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He had said to the women, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees that are in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. That's already not what God says. The serpent has already begun to 
trick and deceive the woman. So verse four says, but the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So look, you can find peace by either submitting to God's will. You can live a life of fulfillment and blessedness by living under God, or you can go on your own way. You can be like God and decide what is good and evil for yourself. And so what does the serpent do? Verse 6, or what does the woman do? Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was the delight to her eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate of it. And just like that, sin entered into the world. And in case you think her husband is some angel he's standing there right next to her like okay uh i guess i'll have some of this too and so she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate then verse seven look how all of peace is just thrown out the door then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths there's shame internal peace is now gone. They realize that they do not live up to the world's standard, their own standard, God's standard. They're insufficient, and so they experience internal strife. They experience shame. Verse 8, they also experience guilt. And so they heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees. They're afraid. They know what they deserve if they've been found out. They know the punishment that is due to them, and so they hide. And so verse 9 says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? It's one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I know the guilt that I have. So verse 11 said, Then he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, The woman, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. <laughs> so there's strife internally, there's strife that comes from guilt, and then there's strife between man and woman now. And I, it's, it's really uh, ironic in my Bible that what the man says here is, comes on just the flip side of my page of what he said in verse 23 of chapter 2. Earlier, here's at last, this at last is bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. This is the one I've been looking for. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And now he says to God, God, I didn't even want this woman in the first place. This is, this is on you. You gave me this woman. In verse 13, And then the Lord said to the man, woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his 
heal. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. So now there's peace between you and the, or there's lack of peace between you and the rest of creation. The world is breaking in every single facet. The woman shall experience pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of all of it the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. It's not going to come easy anymore. The world is cursed. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of you were taken, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This week I was um, reminded of a friend in Kentucky that. I went to school with his his daughter, or sorry, his son, Josiah, um, recently was diagnosed with brain cancer, and so the doctors had to go in and, and remove this tumor just to give this boy a chance of life, except even then there's complications. There's thorns even in the surgery. And so this boy, who was the life of the party, can't even open his eyes anymore. He's just sitting in a wheelchair and struggling to open his eyes. Everything is broken. The man called his wife named Eve because she was called, verse 20, the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live for forever. So now you also have to deal with the lack of peace that comes from death. This best before date in your life. And therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden and placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the truth of life. So look, here's your two options, right? You can turn to the ways of the world for peace or you can turn to Jesus. You can seek to be a better version of yourself. That, that shame and guilt that you want to deal with, you can try to remove it from being a better you. Except every time you get there, it appears as though you want to be a better you. You're never getting to where you wish you were. And when you do think you actually get there, you realize you're not nearly half as good as you thought you were. You can trust others for peace, right? You can, you can get your identity and your approval from, from people around you, except that turns people not into friends, not people into whom you serve. It turns them into commodities. You, you, you use them. They're, they're this wet wipe that you wipe your life with, and then when you're done with them, when they no longer have anything to offer, you open up the trash bin and you throw them away. And that really makes you a good peacemaker, does it? Or you, you trust the world order. 
You, you look to government, society, to, to the economy for, for security, for a little bit of peace. And nothing brings people closer together than politics and a competitive economy, right? And then even if you do all of that, you still have to deal with death. And I don't care if you shop at Whole Paycheck every single day of your life and you eat Wheaties and spinach and kale and you vitamin up, you will die. And you know how I know that? It's because every other person who's had those vitamins has also died. So you can turn to the world. You could, you could look internally. You can work towards finding peace or you can trust in Jesus who said it is finished. The peace has already been given to you. He's already offered you forgiveness of sin and so the removal of your guilt. He's already adopted you into his family and so he delights in you. He's pleased with you. You don't, you don't have to experience shame anymore. He also gives you a family. He gives you fellow brothers and sisters in Christ so that you can be reconciled. He overcomes death himself and so promises you the resurrection and then he defeats sin, guaranteeing that Satan will be done for, that this world which is now broken will all be fixed and that there will be a new heaven and new earth where there'll be no more pain and no more surgery and no more cancer and no more brokenness. So let me ask you, seriously, what are you trusting in? Where are you trying to find peace in this world? Are you working for it? Are you striving for it? Are you, are you digging in a little deeper to just find a little hope? Or are you turning to the one who's done it all? The greatest way to experience peace, the greatest way to become a peacemaker is to put your faith in Jesus. So if we become then a peacemaker by receiving the peace of God, what does being a peacemaker look like in our lives? Well, I think the answer to that is that being a peacemaker looks like being the son of God. It, it looks like receiving the peace that Jesus has given you. Right? If Jesus decides to secure your peace and thus making you a son of God, then your sonship should look like the sonship of Jesus. Now, now I think today we often think of peacemaking as though it is passive, as though it's this absence from conflict. You know, like we just kind of let people have their way with our lives. We just kind of go with the flow. We fly under the radar. We, we just kind of absorb whatever's been thrown out of us. We don't stir up conflict. That, that's what being a peacemaker looks like. But that's actually not the way that Jesus secured your peace. 
Like, just go back to Genesis chapter 3 for a second. Genesis 3 verse 15 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is the promise, the first promise of the gospel. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel. You want to know how Jesus is going to secure your peace is by bruising the head of Satan. And that means he himself is going to have a bruised heel. There's going to be conflict for peace to be secured. Earlier I said that there were a lot of maybe different pictures you may have when thinking of the word peacemaker. Well, I actually think the closest picture we have to a biblical definition of peacemaking is that ballistic missile. Except the picture we're given in the Bible is actually far more deadly because it didn't just give the threat of killing nations or cities. It actually killed the very son of God himself. It's a cross. The cross is the best picture we have of what it looks like to be a peacemaker. Colossians 1 verse 20 puts it this way. And through him, God was reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by what? By a bloody cross. By peace, by the blood of his cross. The cross is the greatest symbol of peacemaking. And so I think if we are going to be a peacemaker, our peacemaking should look like the cross. It it will look like what Jesus did for us. So let me flesh this out in two ways. First, if our lives are going to look like the cross, then this. This is probably my main idea for today. If you get anything, please get this, okay? We, as sons of God, as children of God who have received peace, we are to care about all aspects of peace, especially eternal peace. Let me say that again. We are to care about all aspects of peace, global peace, peace amongst our families, peace between us and our spouse, peace between co-workers, peace all over, but above all else, we are to care about eternal peace. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think it clarifies what our job of reconciliation looks like. Right, So God has reconciled us to himself and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He wasn't counting our trespasses against us. And then he was entrusting that message to others. And what is that? Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal to us. Then says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's true peacemaking. That is the greatest peacemaking. It's bringing people into a reconciled relationship with the God. 
which means that peacemaking isn't always going to look peaceful in the eyes of the world. In peacemaking, if we are bringing people, seeking to bring people into a restored relationship with God, then we are calling people out in their sin. We're telling them, you need Jesus. You are living in rebellion against him. You are not okay. Things are not fine the way they are. Actually, you need to turn your life around and put your hope and faith in something else. That thing you're wanting, it's letting you down. It won't satisfy you. And that's going to ruffle some feathers. I mean, I mean, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Look, uh, when I come, having your faith and bringing your allegiance to me is going to cause up some conflict. So Matthew 10 verse 34 says this, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Turning your allegiance to Jesus is going to cause some strife even in the closest relationships you may have that of your family. Jesus is a great example of what strife and conflict in our lives will look like when we cause or draw people to Jesus and call them to find reconciliation in him. I mean, and Jesus, when he approached the Pharisees, he starts with, woe! Like Jesus, if that's maybe not the thing I would lead with, right? Like, like if you want lovey-dovey, hippie Jesus, peace, everything is fine the way it is. Like, woe is you seven times. Woe, woe, woe. That's probably not what I would lead with. I mean, Jesus went to the cross. He was spat at. He was flogged. He had a crown of thorns put on his head in order to secure peace. And so I think then one of the problems we have is believing that, okay, Jesus stirs the pot and then, you know what, I come along and I kind of pick up the pieces. Like Jesus is not in heaven like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like I, I was a little harsh in that situation. Why don't you come in and kind of soften the blow? No, Jesus is giving us an example of what our lives should look like. Now, I'm not saying that we have unnecessary quarrels wherever we go. I'm not like we just cause in fights left, right, and center. But on matters of primary importance, please hear that. On matters that are essential to your Christian faith, you don't get to compromise. You don't get to soften the message. James 3.17 puts it this way. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. But what comes first? Pure. One pastor put it this way, true peace is always the child of truth. 
Or, or look at the order of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the first pure in heart. So you have a purity, a un kind of split attention towards God and that which is right and true in the world, then blessed are the peacemakers. And then what comes next? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. True peacemaking will bring about persecution. And so let me ask you, are you being a peacemaker or are you just avoiding persecution? Are you trying to see people come into a relationship with Jesus even at the expense of your own well-being? Or are you just trying to put on a front, put a little thin veneer over people's lives and tell them everything is okay so that you yourself can avoid persecution? You don't get to downplay distinctives. You don't get to put aside hard conversations. You don't just get to fit into the status quo. You don't get to pretend everything is fine. I think it's interesting that the World Health Organization, a little while back when they were kind of announcing and trying to warn the world of the state of COVID-19, they proclaimed that the world was in a global health emergency. And yet they also came out with this message. They said that we should remain calm and not impose measures that will unnecessarily interfere with international trade or travel. So when Trump was shutting down his borders internationally, they said, well, you shouldn't do that. You, you shouldn't install measures that will unnecessarily inter in interfere with life. And so my question is then, which is it? Is it a global health emergency or is everything fine? Should we remain calm? And the same goes, okay, are you actually facing the judgment of God? Will everything be okay when you stand before your maker, the one whom you've sinned against and rebelled against and lived a life of treason against? Are you facing judgment or actually is everything fine? Which one is it? Go on, life as normal, or change? As Christians, as sons of God, as people who look to the cross of peace and the God of peace and our Savior of peace, we are to care about all aspects of peace, but especially eternal peace. Second aspect, though, that we learn from looking at the cross is that we are to die to ourselves. Peacemaking looks like dying to yourself. When Jesus goes to the cross, he goes on his own accord. He, he's not forced into that. He's not like, oh, I'm hanging on the cross. Might as well make the best of this situation and redeem my people and offer them peace. No, he goes willingly. He goes sacrificially, right? Like he, he's standing before Pilate and Pilate goes, are you a king? And, he, and Jesus goes, yes. And do you know that I can free you? And then Jesus goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would be doing my part. Translation, Pilate, 
slow down, buddy. If I wanted to, I could be out of here in no time. I'm doing this on my own accord. You're not forcing me into this. And so if then Jesus goes willingly, if the cross is a voluntary act of sacrifice, well, the same should be true of our lives. Matthew 5, verse 43. A little later on in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll look at this in the upcoming months, but we hear these words. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be, what's the language again? Sons of your father who is in heaven. As people who look to the cross, we realize that when we are wronged, we absorb the pain. When we hurt, we desire their well-being. You initiate. You seek restoration out in their life. Now look, on matters of, that are not of primary importance, as followers of Christ, we express our freedom by laying down our rights. True Christian freedom is a freedom to lay aside that which we believe we want for the sake of the good of someone else. We we are free as Christians because everything that we could possibly ultimately want has already been purchased for us. We're, We're free then to say, I want this, but I desire our relationship more. And so I say no. I say, fine, let's have it your way. I say, fine, I'm hurt, but I forgive. I say, fine, you've wronged me, but I don't seek vengeance. Right now, you are probably experiencing some heightened conflict at home. You feel like with being isolated in your homes, it's not giving you maybe the space or the, the kind of ability to just let things go. And so things are sizzling. Things are kind of on the burner and they're boiling and they're boiling and you feel like you just kind of got to try to keep that lid down because any moment from now, things can just boil over the edge. Look, The world thinks peacemaking is pushed down a little harder on that pot. Suppress the anger and animosity that is going on. Just flex your muscle. Maybe threaten that person that you're having a little conflict with, that things will go wrong for them if they try to bring it up. Right, right. You you flex your mind. That's how the world thinks of... Uh, kind of holding down the peace, right? So, so the Cold War, that's not exactly what I would call a time of peace. Always feeling afraid that if someone sneezes, your nation is going to blow up. That's not peace. Peace is not kind of 
flexing your might and just trying to be stronger than the other person. No, peace is laying down your life. Peace is saying, I'm sorry. It's, it's owning your wrong, even if you're just 10% in the wrong and the other person is 90% in the wrong. Peace is trying to be in a relationship with that person more than serving your own desires. So right now, maybe you are mad at your child. Maybe you're mad at your spouse. Look, the onus is on you. And you're like, who's the you, right? I'm sitting next to my spouse. Which one of us are you talking to? Yeah, I'm speaking to you, to both of you. You both are called as peacemakers to lay down your life, to voluntarily go to the cross and bear the burden. As Christians, we die to ourselves. We serve, we sacrifice, we renounce our rights, we go to the cross. So quickly, Len, what's the benefit of being a peacemaker? Well, we are said to be the blessed ones, the happy ones, the flourishing ones. Yes, persecution comes. Yes, we actually bring up conflict sometimes in order to secure a greater peace. And that's hard. And yet, why are we still blessed? Well, because, one, we get to see people experience the greatest peace. Namely, a relationship with our God. Also, we get to be like our God. We get to know that, yes, we are like the one who showed us peace, and we get the joy of delighting in that reality. And lastly, we are the blessed ones because we live with the cross always before our eyes. We get to remember that we have been shown peace by the King of Peace himself, and that is truly a life of flourishing. So here's my heart. I want us to be peace healthy. I want us to be peace healthy. What do I mean by that? Well, some of you right now are peace anemic. You're, you're actually starving from nutrients. You yourself have not been shown peace, and so you're starving, and so you're unable to show peace to others. If that's true... Turn to the cross. Look to your Savior who has secured it all. Find peace yourself. Be filled with the true peace. Some of you, though, are not peace anemic. You're peace obese. You're peace, peace, peace. Everything is fine. You're not actually worried. You're trusting in the great peacemaker. You know that your future is secure and you want to know that what's wrong with that? Well, you're obese. You're just eating and eating and eating and you're not actually turning any of those nutrients into muscle. You're not using that peace for the good of others. The call upon your life is if you have been shown peace, is to show it to others, to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shown us the greatest peace of all, and you did it 
through the most costly act of all. Lord, you sent your one and only son to die so that our sins might be forgiven. Father, I pray, would we trust in him and him alone? God, there are some of us right now at home who are not feeling peace. We don't know where this world is going to go. And so, Father, I ask, would you draw near to them and reveal yourself to them? Show them where true peace is found, namely in you. Fathers, for other of us, we have been shown that peace, but right now we're holding on to bitterness. We're holding on to our rights. Father, I pray, help us to lay down our lives for those around us. Help us to show this world a picture of true peace by going to the cross ourselves. Father, we love you. We thank you. We are grateful that you have blessed us as your sons and daughters. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.